the beginning, we were created and designed to live and walk with God. But humanity traded the truth for a lie. We traded the glory and goodness of God for the world and our own ways. Separated from God, we were stuck in a pit of our own making. But Jesus broke through. Through His death on the cross and His resurrection, He rescued us from our sin, shame, and pain. Jesus shows us and teaches us how to live a new life, full life, a life that is upside down compared to what we are used to. His upside down, or rather, right-side-up ways are beautiful and perfect. He empowers us to live His mission, turning this upside-down world right-side-up for His kingdom, His power, and His glory. Welcome to uh, the next installment of what we affectionately refer to around here as the best sermon ever. Uh, Not as in you're about to get this as the best sermon ever, but reference to Jesus' best sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We're actually pretty early on in that sermon. He talks about what this is all about, that we are to be, he says, salt and light to the world. That this idea of salt, that when people get a taste of us, they get a taste of Jesus. And light, when they get a look at us, uh, that they see Jesus. And I just wanna briefly share how your generosity as a church is making the salt and light of Jesus happen in our world. And that's some, we, good, we have some good news at, as we looked at our year-end financials. Uh, first of all, just kudos to our staff team who uh, kept the expenses under budget. That's always fun. And then on the other side of that, your generosity exceeded our expenses as well as our projected and forecasted budget. So that gave us as a church the opportunity to be uh, generous with gifts to our local and and global missions partners that were above and beyond what is already uh, of our 2022 income, 24% went to missions and ministries outside of our church. And so in addition to that, with a combination with the elders and the, admission, uh, the business administration team of our church, we were able to give an additional $60,000 to ministry partners uh, locally, like New Life Pregnancy Center, Good Samaritan Inn, Northeast Community Fund, and others, as well as to our global missions partners, uh, the Uramovs, uh, to our Leonard's uh, family, who's getting like support raising for uh, the opportunity to be full-time missionaries here in Kenya in the days ahead. And then very specific specifically there to meet an acute need for our brothers and sisters in southern Kenya uh, that in a region to date we have sent 12 uh, getting ready to take our 13th mission trip here this June a medical mission trip that's going to be in direct response to the devastating effects of a now three-year drought in Kenya. Uh, But because of your generosity, we were able to direct $30,000 directly to our missions partners in Kenya through CMF, Christian Missionary Fellowship, as well as uh, our partner, Dr. Daniel Koitotoy, if you've been around, you know him, uh, essentially with like zero overhead. And so all of those funds were able to be translated directly into 150,000 meals for families hit the hardest 
by the drought. And as I just think about those, I'm just like, I'm just thankful and humbled uh, to give me part of what God is doing here with you in his kingdom. So just thank you for your generosity here in uh, being a part of what God's up to, to be salt and light uh, in real tangible ways around our world. Uh, and so with that, as we continue through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we are now in verse 27 of chapter 5 of Matthew, where uh, we come to some topics where I will just say straight up and right out of the gate, these are the most difficult topics that I personally have ever set out to preach sermons on uh, that are coming up over the next three weeks. As today, we're going to be uh, discussing the subject of adultery and lust. Next week, we're going to be talking about divorce and remarriage. And then from there, we're going to talk about defining sexuality, namely LGBTQIA+. And then the week after that, if there's anyone left, (laughs) we're just going to meet up in my garage. (laughs) Here's my prayer. My prayer is that the words of Jesus would do exactly what they were designed to do, that they would set us free, that they would not be heard as things that are looking to restrict you, to hold you back, to steal your fun, nor as you realize Jesus' best for you and maybe discover that you have not been living in that, on the reverse side of that coin, that you would not be held back in guilt or shame. That is of the evil one. Guilt and shame is not of God. But that we would discover the freedom, the freedom that really paradoxically comes when we surrender ourselves to the king and his kingdom. That this freedom that we would experience, it's the only way we're going to hear anything that we have to say over the next, or frankly, anything we have to hear from God's word at all, is going to be, you could say, on a foundation of three truths. Three key truths that are going to carry us through everything we ever hear from the word and the mouth of Jesus, mouth of Jesus. And um, you could say three truths, three, uh, or to kind of illustrate here, I have my three-legged stool, that if you remove any one of these truths, any one of these legs, you kick one out, then we know we're going down. And so we need to firmly plant ourselves on these three truths. Number one, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then from that, because this is true, it is actually God's kindness that leads to repentance. It's his kindness, it's his goodness, it's best for us. As we've talked about, the Holy Spirit convicts our heart, and then out of the overflow of that, we repent, we change our mind is what that word means, which then we are changing our direction, and thus our behavior then comes out of that, not the other way around. Uh, Because we believe what Jesus said. In John 10, 10, when he says the thief, the evil one, he comes with guilt and shame and to steal and to kill and destroy, but Jesus says, I have come, that you may have life and life to the full. In other words, you believe. You have to put your faith on the reality that you actually believe that the one who gave you life actually designed the ideal way to live that life. And so with these ideas in mind, uh, let me pray for us all to anchor ourselves here as we move forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Number one, we just want to say that we are choosing to trust. That is this white flag on the stage represents. We surrender 
trusting that you and your best ways bring freedom. And that as we realize that maybe we have not been living in your best way of life as the giver of life, that we would not be deceived by the evil one to be stuck in guilt or shame, but recognize it's your kindness, that your goodness, that you want what's best for us, it leads us to repentance, to turn to your ways, because there is no condemnation for those of us who place our faith in you. And so for those who have placed their faith in you, do not let the evil one kind of snatch that away. And today, for those who are checking you out, God, may they see the goodness of your ways and realize that there's no condemnation there. There's forgiveness, there's grace, that in this truth, you are lovingly showing us the best way to live. And so may it be in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we're in the midst of a section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is rifling through a number of teachings, really corrective teachings, where he says uh, to the people, you've heard it said, and he's addressing the way that the religious leaders of the day had been misinterpreting uh, you know, God's word by focusing really primarily on the external, like physical behaviors, and then weighing the people down with this. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I'm correcting this. I say to you, and what we're gonna see every time is Jesus is gonna keep coming back to the inside, uh, the, to the heart, as Jesus will say, out of the overflow of our heart, our lives are lived. And so a couple of weeks ago, uh, we looked at the teaching where Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder, a physical behavior. But Jesus goes on, he says, I say to you, do not even be angry to the point where you hold contempt in your heart for another human being. Last week, uh, we looked at with Pastor BJ. He said, you've heard it said about keeping your oaths, your vows, your keeping your pinky promises. But Jesus says, I say to you, let simply your yes and your no be full of integrity of heart, that it would just be a behavior that naturally follows what God is doing on the inside. And today, we come to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, where Jesus says again, you have heard that it was said, and then he says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, Jesus says, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Jesus, he is saying that adultery is a physical sin, but just like anger and integrity that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, adultery is ultimately an issue of the heart. I think the way that uh, the message paraphrase uh, says this, really gets to the heart of this heart matter, uh, paraphrasing Matthew 5, 27 this way. He says, you know the next commandment pretty well too. Don't go to bed with another spouse. But don't think that you've preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those ogling looks you think nobody notices they also corrupt. And so before we tackle this topic of, we could say, heart adultery, before we tackle uh, lust in that way, what is, you could say, physical adultery, uh, where this command gets its roots? Well, physical adultery, uh, thou shall not commit adultery, is actually the seventh of what we know as the Ten Commandments that we find in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter five in the Bible. And this is how we would define it. Adultery is simply this. Adultery is sex with someone outside of a covenant marriage. Adultery is having sex with someone outside of 
a covenant marriage. And a covenant here is a, it's a Bible word. It's a God word that says that it's more than a contract. This is like a spiritual commitment before God and one another. It's like next level commitment one to another. And so the idea of adultery then most obviously would mean that if as a married person you have sex with someone you are not married to, then this would be adultery. Now, let me just say, if you are married and adultery has been a part of your story, I cannot even pretend to understand the weight, the pain, uh, the betrayal of commitment and trust that has marked your life. And Jesus, he addresses the weight of this uh, as he talks about uh, adultery as it relates to marriage and divorce and remarriage, which we're going to look at more closely next week. But recognize that even as we understand it probably most normally in that understanding that as a married person having sex with someone you're not married to, we must recognize that adultery is also uh, if you are an unmarried person. Definition still applies. It's sex with someone outside of a covenant marriage. And so hooking up with someone who is not your spouse is adultery. Or sex with your girlfriend or your boyfriend who is not your spouse, who you love, but you are not married to, is adultery. Because in that relationship, love is, according to the scriptures, is not self-seeking, but it's about having the best for the other person to whom you want what's best for. And so love, it waits until covenant marriage. And this would also include, then, your fiancé, who is not yet your spouse. And why is that? Well, because adultery is sex with someone outside of covenant marriage. And again, this all comes down to that third pillar. Like, do we actually believe that God's design, that God's ways are actually what's best? That God's design for sex within a covenant marriage is God's best for you? I think one of the ways that we've settled into uh, an acceptance and a stepping away from God's design for sex within a covenant marriage is by the increasing popularity of couples choosing to live together prior to or even at the absence of marriage altogether. Now, I realize my audience, and I know that I am speaking to several who are living together right now but are not married And on the surface, I get why some choose this. Uh, I mean, it seems sensible that we would live together so we can create a marriage-like environment in which to almost pilot whether a lifetime together in the same household could work. And I get it. Choosing wisely the person you're going to spend the rest of your life with is, is a wise thing to do. You want to take that very seriously. And so I get that. Or for some, I've noticed in the conversations I have, it really comes down to almost just a kind of a functional practicality regarding finances and just sharing the load of the utilities and the rent or the mortgage. And then for others still, I think they just had a front row seat. Maybe you just had a front row seat to your parents' bad marriage. Or maybe personally, you've already lived through a difficult, failed marriage. And you just don't want to replicate that. And so I get these things. But... As much as these reasons seem to make sense on the surface, they are, to use the words of Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that living together outside of marriage is a foundation of shifting sand. 
It's a foundation of shifting sand when it comes to increasing the likelihood of a successful marriage. Now, for some of you, I would suspect that in your mind you've already concluded, you know, Brian, I I get what you're saying, but you've kind of got to get with the times. Like, what you're saying is pretty old-fashioned. And you'd be correct. I mean, 60 years ago, almost no one lived together before marriage. But today, more than half of all people do. And you might argue, like, hey, it's old-fashioned and out of date for good reason, because as a culture now, I mean, we, we know more, we're more educated, we seem to understand things better now, and honestly, Brian, the things you're proposing, the way things have changed, it's just, you might say, this is just not the way that the real world works. Well, I would argue that the way, quote, the real world works does not seem to be working. University of Wisconsin, secular school, uh, secular university reports that those who marry after cohabitating have right around a 75% divorce rate. Another study more or less corroborated this. Uh, that its findings said that those marriages that began in cohabitation uh, are 46% more likely to end in divorce, which would be a 73% divorce rate. And so if you take, uh, you could say the current divorce rate uh, in America at right around 50%, well, that means those who cohabitate before they are married are two times, twice as likely to have a marriage that ends in divorce. That University of Wisconsin study also discovered that actually only 15 out of every 100 cohabitating couples were married after 10 years, after a decade. In other words, 85% of couples who are living together as a pathway to marriage will not even be married in 10 years, 85%. And so, as Proverbs 14.12 puts it, there is this way that appears to be right, but in the end, leads to death. And so for whatever reason that might appear right, The math on living together tells a different story. A story that more likely in the end leads to the death of that marriage, that is, if one is even birthed at all. Now, we are well aware that just, quote, not living together is no guarantee that uh, couples will abstain from sex with someone outside of covenant marriage. And, And so maybe zooming out a bit, like, why is this? Like, why is sex with someone you are not married to not God's best? Like, why is that sin? Like, why is this the way that God designed it? As many would argue, uh, sex, after all, is just physical. It's just physical. And while there is much that could be said about that conclusion, I would just say anecdotally, or just ask if it is just physical, Why does a spouse doing something, quote, just physical with someone who isn't their spouse, the deepest of all marital wounds? Because it's not just physical. It's emotional, it's mental, and most of all, it's it's spiritual. It's spiritual. First of all, we see that it's physiologically mental and emotional. 
and that during sex, the chemical hormone, oxytocin, is released into the brain and the bloodstream and is what psychologists call the bonding hormone because it bonds us mentally and emotionally to each other, which in turn is an effect of that spiritual bond of which Jesus actually discusses. He actually quotes the very first marriage from the beginning. Jesus in Genesis from the beginning says this is how marriage was designed. He says, haven't you heard that at the beginning the creator made them, male and female, and said for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally, let no one separate. You see, why sex with someone you are not married to, whether unmarried or married to someone else, like, this is why it's such a big deal. Because when you do like, marriage covenant things with people you aren't in a marriage covenant with, well, then you are messing with God's designed order of things that are way more than just physical. They are physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual all wrapped together. We are holistic beings in which we were created in his image. We're two, Jesus says, are no longer two, but become one flesh. And there is much more that could be said to address regarding the nature of marriage, of what it is and what it isn't. And uh, we haven't even touched singleness. And I'll say as a church, uh, by and large, the church has not done a very good job of elevating what the scriptures say about singleness. And so we're going to be looking at these things more next week. But as we continue to follow Jesus and where he's taking us, uh, we recognize that is physical adultery. But Jesus goes one step further as he provides a very, very concerning caution when it comes to not just physical adultery, but we would say adultery in our hearts. Uh, as Jesus says, looking at that passage again, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And so that's obviously physical adultery. Then he moves into heart adultery saying, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully or with lustful intent, that could be translated, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so heart adultery, what, what is heart adultery? What is lust or lustful intent? Well, first let me share what it is not. Like in that what it is not, it is not noticing that someone is attractive. Like if you have eyeballs and a brain, you can notice if someone is pretty or handsome or attractive. But the caution is then what you do with that attraction. I mean, unless you're like at the place where you're honestly like, I've never found another human being attractive. Awesome. Way to go. <laughs> but if that's not the case, then we all have to figure out what do we do with this caution and this correction from Jesus? And so if that's what lustful intent is not, what is then lust or lustful intent? Well, John Maxwell, he gives us, I think, a very helpful definition in describing it this way. He says, lust is a thought that I cherish and entertain and hold on to, that if I did what I thought, it would clearly be sin. I find that helpful. That lust is a thought, that if I, I cherish it, I entertain it, and I hold on to it, that if I actually acted on what I thought, then it's pretty obvious it would be a sin. And so with that in mind, like 
you might not be able to control. Every image that hits your eyes or every thought that lands on your mind. But you should have some say in whether or not those images or those thoughts feel welcome there. I appreciate the way the 16th century reformer Martin Luther said it when he said, I might not be able to keep a bird from flying down and landing on my head, but I can keep him from building a nest there. I like that. I might not be able to control if a bird swoops down and lands on my head, but I sure can have some say on whether or not I let it build a nest there. And I think we would recognize that in our culture, in our world, the place where this is most obviously uh, permeated our culture of heart adultery and lust is in the space of pornography. And the reason that pornography is so pervasive is its power to literally rewire our brain chemistry toward lust. Christian biopsychologist, Dr. William Struthers, in his book, Wired for Intimacy, uh, he explains it this way. He says, as we fall deeper into the mental habit of fixating on these images, the exposure to them creates neuropathways. It's like a path that is created in the woods with each successive hike along it. The same happens in our minds as the viewing of porn sets the neuropaths for the next time an erotic image is viewed. Over time, these neuropathways become wider and wider as they become repeatedly traveled with exposure to pornography. In other words, you are literally creating in your mind like ruts, like deep ruts, a deep ditch that's like on the side of the road of your mental life, that with each experience, that experience, it makes it that much easier for you to drive your life into, and then that much more difficult to steer your life out of. In fact, the addictive nature and pool of pornography has been related to that of heroin or cocaine. It's that powerful. It's that dangerous. And again, similar to the living together conversation, you might be saying, Brian, like, look around. Like, it's everywhere. I mean, it is, like, you, like, you just can't get past it. You can't get around it. I mean, and let's be honest, I mean, a little porn never hurt anyone. Well, that conclusion sounds very similar to what was said 70 years ago this year, Uh, that in 1953, when pornography showed up uh, on the cultural scene in a way that it had not prior. In 1953, Hugh Hefner started the magazine called Playboy. And Hefner said to everyone back in the 1950s, hey, if you view these pictures, if you read my articles, you will become a more experienced lover and your marriage will be more fun and creativity over the long haul. The problem is, most of those couples never made it to the long haul because pornography created a dissatisfaction with what they have and it caused their eyes to wander and look for sexual fulfillment outside of the marriage relationship. What Hefner promised turned out to be a lie. And even more concerning still is what this is doing to our kids. What's doing to our kids, the way that they view themselves, the way that they view the opposite sex, 
and the ways they are unbeknowingly, negatively impacting their future marriages long before they even have the opportunity to say, I do. One pastor said it this way. He said, to send a teenage boy into his room with a smartphone is as dangerous as handing him a loaded gun. And so parents, be wise. Be wise uh, with these phones, the access that you have to them, the filters that are on them. They will need your wisdom and your direction on this. They need you to talk with them about these things. You know, gone are the days of the talk. Gone are the days of the talk. What we need, what our kids need, they need lots of talks, regular talks. And as you know, if we were having a conversation knee to knee, eye to eye across the table, we know that those conversations need to happen way earlier than any of us feel like they should have to and way more often than any of us will ever feel like we want to. There's a mantra that Jessica and I came across. Uh, it just was simply this. Hey, when it comes to this, early and often. Early and often. Early and often. We've got to keep that before us because like you, it's not something that just naturally comes up over dinner. We've got to be intentional to have these conversations early and often. And, and please, just even as I say this, my goodness, like please do not hear this as like, I've got this figured out, we've got this figured out. Like, in fact, Anything that's come as decent and good counsel for us in this space has come from those of you here in life of this church. I feel like I just need to hand the iPad over to a couple of you to kind of finish this talk because we are right there with you, just in the trenches, trying to figure out, praying our way through it, seeking wisdom just like you, and trying to pursue early and often with God's grace in the midst of all of it. We're right there with you, so please don't hear something different. But here's the bottom line. When it comes to pornography, like pornography it is costly. Pornography is costly. The, the brain science is clear. It's costly to your mind. It, it's costly to your relationship with your spouse or your future spouse, your kids. It's costly to, Jesus is very clear, to your heart and your soul. That every click, though you think it's free, you need to know that it is supporting and contributing and perpetuating, perpetuating an industry that targets and preys on young women, children, and human trafficking. Uh, pastor Joby Martin, a pastor out of Florida, um, he had this sobering statement when it comes to pornography and the cost associated. He says it this way, he says, you think it's just a click, it's just a website, and what does that cost you? Well, just whatever a little internet or data connection costs you. But I'll tell you, it's cost that poor girl her whole life. You think it's a victimless crime. It's not. It doesn't seem like it costs you a lot, but in order for that girl to get to that place, can you imagine going to her dad and saying, hey, I just really appreciate you abandoning her when she was three? Or, or hey, uncle, I really appreciate you abusing her when she was 11. And hey, drug dealer, thanks for keeping her high so I can use her how I want to when I want to. Thank you, because it doesn't cost me much. And so yes, pornography is costly to our mind, our heart, our soul, 
but it's also very costly to the heart and the mind and the soul of the person created in the image of God on the other side of that screen. And while pornography is largely, um, you could say, understood as a male challenge, um, uh, which actually uh, women are the now uh, the highest, uh, fastest growing users of pornography, which I think is probably tied uh, to some other thing, a, a second only to that of 12 to 17 year old boys, um, that the temptation we could say that toward lust to play out in women's lives is different than it is for men, arguably because of the way that we are more physically wired. Uh, but getting some input from some other staff members on this particular topic, uh, one female staff member put it this way, and I'm just gonna read what she wrote because I think she uh, describes it well. She said, typically in a relationship, or the desire for a relationship, that women, they aren't necessarily looking for physical characteristics as much as they are looking for personality or character traits. Culture throughout time has given us a lot of pictures of an ideal man. I think women struggle with the pursuit of that. This is a big part of why the romance industry is such a huge one. It presents this ideal character that women desire and look for. And so movies, TV shows, books, they, they present us with this airbrushed image of a perfect relationship and a perfect man. And so, what do we do? Like men, women, what do we do with this? Well, Jesus gives us an answer. He goes on. We've only got through one verse. Isn't that something? Okay, verse 28. Jesus goes on. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Now, imagine if you're listening to this sermon and you're waiting for Jesus to say that he's not saying what it sounds like he's saying. The only problem is Jesus never gets to the part where he says, just kidding. Instead, he says, I'm just getting started. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. To which you might say to Jesus, Jesus, this is pretty extreme. To which I would say, Jesus, I think, would say this is extremely important. This is extremely important. Now, before you go home and jab a pencil into your eye or a hacksaw to your wrist, um, I do think that the study notes in the NIV Zondervan Study Bible, the commentary on this, is helpful. As they say, these are classic examples of hyperbole, not meant to be acted on literally. And this line kind of really, I thought was very helpful. After all, blind and injured people can still lust. This is Bible commentary. It's not meant to be funny. I too giggled because I found it helpful. So yes, this is helpful reality. And so what is Jesus saying? What is he getting at? What Jesus is saying is that we absolutely have to take this very seriously. And, and what he's saying in this passage is he's saying, you've got to do whatever it takes. You've got to do whatever it takes to take this out of your life. Because you think 
hey, it's just a look, it's just a picture, it's just a website, it's just an app, it's just a movie, it's just, just a Netflix series, it's just social media, it's just a romance novel. Jesus says, look out, it leads to lust and left unchecked, unconfessed and unrepented, it's a highway to hell. And so Jesus, he is like shaking us out of our naive ignorance, our excuses, our flimsy justifications. And Jesus is saying, hey, you gotta do whatever it takes. You know, that person you work with, too much of a temptation, quit your job. There's other jobs. That smartphone, continually a problem, get a flip phone. Scrolling through social media, suggesting images that you didn't even go looking for, but you can't seem to turn away from. Stop social media. You might even say, I can't, I've heard this say, like, I can't even go to my favorite news site without things leading me to lust. Let's stop looking at the news and find a way to listen to it. Jessica and I had a friend in, uh, that struggled with coveting and lusting because of uh, romance novels that she was reading, that she realized it was presenting this airbrushed idea of the perfect man, the perfect husband, who was not her husband. And so she cut those out of her life. And as I list all these, you might just think, Brian, like, this sounds very extreme. To which, again, I would argue, I think Jesus would say this is extremely important. Jesus is saying pretty clearly, take extreme measures to do whatever it is you need to do to blind your eye to the source of that lust, to cut off access to that toxin for your soul. Do whatever it takes to cut off the gateway to physical and to heart adultery. You know, it's interesting actually how the Bible encourages us to do this. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, in his letters to the church in navigating these kinds of things, uh, for example, when it comes to spiritual warfare and like taking on the devil, in Ephesians 6, he says, hey, put on the full armor of God, he says, to quote, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, he says, to stand firm. That that's how we're supposed to take on the devil and his temptations. But later, when it comes to sexual sin, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, oh, no, don't do that. Flee. Like, don't stand there and fight. When it comes to sexual sin, like, flee from sexual immorality. The New Living Translation says, run from sexual sin. Uh, the Forrest Gump Translation says, run, Forrest, run. Like, run very far and very fast away. We need to flee from this so that when we turn from it, we can turn toward, away from sexual immorality and toward purity, pursuing purity. And so this particular time that we have together is not the space or the place to be able to give an exhaustive list of resources to come alongside you and whatever it means for you to do whatever it takes. Uh, but on the website that's associated with this series, thebestsermonever.com, we have uh, a link to give you some further resources. Again, wherever you feel like you are at in the space, you wanna gain some ground uh, to come alongside you. Not just with, we just wanna throw books and studies at you, but as the pastoral staff, counseling, like whatever it is, wherever you are at, we are committed to coming alongside you to help you do whatever it takes to cut this out of your life. But as we conclude this, um, it's really important that we conclude this conversation the same way that we started it. That we come back to this three-legged stool. That if we go from this conversation not firmly planted and seated on these three realities then that's where the shame and the guilt that's of the evil one creeps in and leaves us in a very, very bad space. 
And so may I remind us the truth of God's word, the foundation of this and anything that Jesus ever has for us. Number one, Romans 2, 4, is, this is God's kindness for us. This is his goodness. This is his best for us that is convicting our heart so that we can repent, change our mind, and then from there change our direction and thus our behavior, not in our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because Romans 8, 1 there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I gotta tell you, I love how Jesus doesn't just teach this, he lives this. There's a setting in John chapter eight where there's this woman who is literally caught in the act of adultery. They throw her before a crowd and they're getting ready to pummel her with rocks to death as the penalty for her sin. To which Jesus says, whichever one of you is without sin, you go ahead, you throw that first rock to which the scripture say that one by one, each and every single one of them drop their rocks until there is no one left standing except the only one who is actually without sin, Jesus and this woman. To which Jesus asks her, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And Jesus says, then neither do I. In me there is no condemnation. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. So go now and leave your life of sin. You see, Jesus came, says in John 1, full of grace and truth. That in grace, Jesus is perfect in lovingly telling us the truth to show us our sin. And he's also truthfully loving enough to not leave us in our sin, to forgive us that when we repent, when we turn, when we go now and leave our life of sin because we believe the third leg of that stool, John 10, 10, why only the thief comes to steal, kill, destroy, guilt, shame, Jesus promises, I have come to give you life and life to the full because my way from the best sermon ever is the very best way to live this life that I have given you promises Jesus. And so in that truth, let's pray for his Holy Spirit's help to live out everything that he has said. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you know, and any impression I've given anyone else differently, I've got my own junk, my own stuff, my own sin. I am in no way up here throwing rocks, God. I've dropped mine along with every other single person in the room. We have nothing to throw. We have all fallen short. Maybe in this way, maybe in others. But I'm also thankful, God, that I also share along with every other person in this room that you saved our life because we believed and trusted in you because as we're getting ready to sing and proclaim, the only thing that makes this possible your sacrifice, your blood applied to our sin and shame so that it is washed white as snow and that as far as from the east is from the west. And so, Father, where we all have not lived your best ways, just as quickly, we give thanks for the forgiveness and the repentance to turn from that by your power at work within us trusting that that new path is life and life to the full. That you, the one who gave us life, has shown us the best way to live this life. 
And so may it be in the name of Jesus. Amen.